So today we're talking to Malcolm. Hi, Malcolm. Hi. Great to have you back on the podcast. Uh, Malcolm is the CTO of Juxt, if no, someone doesn't know. Uh, would you like to say a few words about yourself? Uh, CTO of Juxt, I'm a closure developer. I'm a kind of been, uh, had an IT career for about, well, since 94. Um, mm -hmm. Got into Java very early on, enterprise Java uh, enterprise Java Beans, all the enterprise Java stuff, and and then discovered Clojure in about 2010. So, I've kind of been been an avid Clojure fan ever since. Right, and 10 is a good time, or it is a good number because to, uh, this year is the 10 year anniversary of Jack. So, congratulations for that. That's a great achievement to you know run the company for 10 years. Uh, yeah, I'm very happy for that. I'm sure there's a lot of folks in Clojure community that are happy for that, and you working with them. So. Congrats. Um, and today we're going to talk about uh, atomic architectures. Um, and I think first time I heard about it, there was a talk that you gave at, I think it was also a Juxt internal meeting. Uh, and this is the first time I, I watched the talk. Uh, and then I think you refined this over the time. So what is atomic architecture? Yeah, atomic architecture is something that I've been working on for just over a year now and I had a, a talk it was an internal talk and it wasn't really meant to go I don't know if it was meant to go live on YouTube but it, it, did. it did and it was a little bit tongue-in-cheek as, as internal talks are so I had this kind of CTO of the year thing going on and it was, it was kind of a bit self-deprecating but uh, it was yeah, last actually on Monday I gave a, a, a public talk in Copenhagen at the, mm -hmm. the closure group there so I have talked about this publicly but this is kind of the first time I've talked about it on a podcast mm -hmm. so like where how do we dissect this where do we start like do we start to compare this to something like how do you explain atomic yeah I think the context here is that we've um I, I think closure is on a bit of an uptick at the moment there's been a lot of people in the communities the communities have been growing a lot of companies have been successful um there's been Obviously, New Bank as the poster child of Clojure has been very successful as a bank, and there's lots of other really good examples where people are using Clojure successfully. And the Clojure language was really, I remember Stu Halloway in his programming Clojure book called it a minor miracle, and that's how I perceive it. It was really, when I discovered it, it was changed a lot about the way I coded in the small. But over the 10 years of kind of using it in a company, uh, obviously, the, the language itself doesn't tell you how to build a software architecture. And there have been attempts by people to um, create software architectures. But I think over the years, most software architectures I come across are highly influenced by object orientation. And Clojure isn't an object-oriented language. And so I've been seeking how what is it about Clojure that makes it work in the small? And how which principles and properties of Clojure could we bring and scale up and actually influence our, the architectures that we build? And at the same time, there's a lot of people in the community who are started maybe as junior, mid-level developers when they picked up Clojure and they've kind of grown into more senior principal architects now and uh, and want to exploit those principles in, in, in bigger software systems. And when we're talking about system architectures, uh, are we do we have any specific system in mind, or is there any specific use case for those systems? For for atomic architecture, yeah. I mean, are we talking about I don't know, like web uh, services, or are we talking about something else? Or yeah, I think we're talking about architectures within companies, mm -hmm. often departments, and what you might call domains. So people who have a shared goal 
common language and a set of relationships with either other people in the company mm-hmm. or people outside the company, partners or customers directly. And I think that's the, uh, that's the scope. And we're talking about systems that are transactional as well as analytical. So um, departments that have a responsibility for keeping live, live systems information mm-hmm. current and also reporting that information to consumers. So quite a large um, class of applications. Mm-hmm. Um, so like every architecture comes uh, with its own, like I guess, set of principles. Uh, how, how does this look like for atomic architectures? Yeah, the, well, the, the, the term atomic architecture is actually comes from, derived from the, the closure atom. And if you look at the semantics of a closure atom, the, um, the atom contains some state and the state is, evolves through the succession, successive application functions. Mm-hmm. So we're scaling that up, saying that we, we value having all of our state in one place because it means there's one place to go to, we can join and understand our data, and we can keep it all current in terms of its own, it can be a standalone set of data. Mm-hmm. There's so, so many, my observation is that in so many architectures, state is scattered everywhere, it, not just in the organization, but it, for many organizations today, state is in SaaS products, it's in um, other vendor organizations, it's, in, it's just, everywhere it's in spreadsheets it's sitting on people's right. um, pcs it's in sharepoints and nt drives it's it's absolutely everywhere and it's makes it very very hard to firstly find the data and join it and to to get insights from it mm-hmm. unless you sort of move it all into one place and so it starts off being very very fragmented mm-hmm. um, and i think that's a real missed opportunity and and i talk about shared state as being something that we we did actually have and i and i started my career in, in you know, the early 90s, I noticed that the, what we, the architectures that we were building at the time were PC, Unix, client-server architectures. Mm-hmm. So you would have a Unix machine with a database, typically Oracle or Sybase, and then you would have a cluster of PCs that would be talking to that database, and sometimes you'd have multiple applications. And so all of those applications, whether they were Power Builder or SQL Windows or Visual Basic, they would be storing... Their, their records in a shared database, and that was the point of integration. And mm-hmm. um, so that the problem with that that approach is that it didn't survive the onset of the web. And I think it was a bit of it kind of died and died prematurely. Um, it was a very good idea to integrate and in, have a, a common site for putting state mm-hmm. and, and sharing state around applications. But what happened is that the web came out. The the browsers became very popular. And people started to write applications, and the the browsers didn't talk to the databases. They didn't talk JDBC. I mean, there were some exceptions. There were some Java applets and WebLogic drivers that would talk, but the the, the web abstraction just didn't really um, work for that client-server model. Mm-hmm. And so you saw the introduction of web servers like Apache, and. So applications and people were writing object-oriented systems in Ruby and Java and Python that, that were hiding the database. Um, the reason they were hiding the database is that they, um, you couldn't really, uh, you, you, you have these object-relational, mon- uh, 
ORM systems right. that would uh, allow people to store state in the databases. But they didn't work very well when you had multiple applications all talking to the same database. Mm -hmm. um, often you'd have caching issues and staleness and the, the ORM wouldn't know that the data had been updated. And so things only really worked when an application could completely own its own storage. And so what you saw then is the kind of the, the decline of this idea of the database at the center of things and more that you've got this spread out of services all talking to each other using web protocols. Right, and they all have their own state. And they all have their own state. Right. Yeah. So this is sort of the reference that you made to the object-oriented programming where the objects in object-oriented programming, they also have their own state, they mutate, but now we are talking about distributed systems that communicate over the wire and they all somehow need to agree, like what's the state of this whole thing? Mm -hmm. There isn't really a common state. It's every everyone has their own state, and they're right. all communicating. So it's a whole set of different actors. Um, but from a departmental level, there isn't a common story or a common narrative to say what the overall state was. So even things in you know business decisions like have I approved this loan? How do you know? You, everything's in flight, um, and uh, everything that is then subjective subject to for forensics and debugging mm -hmm. and looking at logs and tracing to find out what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a very unsatisfactory right. uh, way of building an information system. If you're, you're trying to build an information system for clients, mm -hmm. um, not knowing where the information is, is, is not a good place to be. Right. So how, do we, how can we solve this problem with this spread of state? I, I think we have to go back to you know, the shared state model. And there are some successful, I suppose, in the small. Um, I know that, uh, Eshik, you've been, um, been working in ClojureScript for many years and, and you're, you're familiar with you know, the reagent atom and building reframe applications. Right. And a reframe application has a single atom, a right. single store of state. And then the events come in and the events turn into functions that are applied on, onto, that, um, onto that state. So front-end architectures are actually quite complex mm -hmm. and this model we've both seen work um, very successfully so I think that is a an indication that this is a scheme that can work so atomic architecture is saying well let's try this at a larger you know not just in the browser but let's try this uh, idea further afield mm -hmm. right uh, so we're going to the shared state and you know there was a moment I think when I felt like the front-end development went to the centralized state because like if you think about jQuery days and we would have also like the state all over the place. It was not connected in any way. Then we had the single page applications where they shared the state. And I then I saw the backend is just going totally opposite direction. It was like microservices, everything is shared. It's like how do we figure this out? Right. So that's more or less uh, that's more or less the, the observation. And now we're saying, well actually this was good because before we have the database. So like how like what's the I don't know, like also what, uh, hmm, how can I put this? I think there is always uh, the question of the size, how big something is that you can really like keep it in one place and then at one point you need to start to cut it out, uh, cut it and then spread it in different parts. Yeah, exactly. But I think this, um, in atomic architecture, what we're saying is that, of course, can't coordinate everybody's activities around a monolith. We don't want to go back to a monolith where absolutely every kind of feature 
is packed within one code base. And, mm -hmm. But rather than break up the monolith into separate microservices, what we're saying is just distill the thing that we really want to, to have in one place, which is the state. Mm -hmm. And that, that means if we move the state over, uh, extract the state from each of these other applications, these applications then can be split off and they can, you can have a myriad of separate applications all written by different teams, but because they're all talking to the same state, that, that's the problem to solve. And so have coordination around the changes to the state, get people to meet together, get documents, get, do some upfront design, but work on what, what is that common data model. Now, that is definitely a challenge. And I think in you know, there have been very abortive efforts to get whole groups of people to agree on a single model. So I think there are some things that we've learned in the last 10, 20 years about how you do modeling a little bit more in a, a lightweight schema approach. And, and Clojure has a lot of things to say about modeling things in just flat maps with, right. with namespace keywords. So there are some tricks and certainly things that can make um, it less um, brittle and regimented, this whole look upfront schema. So part of the shared state is about trying to think of things that are just less, um, I, I suppose, strongly typed and, and, and more dynamic and allows a, a little bit more fluidity in mm -hmm. terms of modeling. Right. So you mentioned we keep the state, but we spread sort of the functionality or the domain or whatever we want to actually call it. So uh, would that be the way to go? Let's just start to split the, so share the state, and split the functionality into different parts. Yeah, I think I think so. So the 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 functionality. What I've I, if we go into sort of principle two of atomic architecture, mm -hmm. this is domain operations. So it's about trying to define what exactly are the state changes. So we want to make sure that everything that every way that the state changes uh, can be tied to something that happened in the domain. And that, that something that happened is a domain operation. It's like a, a verb mm -hmm. system. Um, so we okay. can break our, our, our domain operations into things like verbs, like book appointment, cancel mm -hmm. reservation, refund customer, get a booking, send a confirmation. All of these things are in a business language. And they all can be written in terms of how they change the organization state or the department state. Mm -hmm. All right. So we split this into different like yeah i would say hmm, functions that work on this uh, work on this state uh and like my my question is still how so how does the how do we pass the state around well the the, the you don't you can't pass the state around because it's there's often quite a lot of it and it's in a database so what you do is you pass the functions around functions are often quite small and can be serialized and they can be you know they, they can be written in code and so I think these are these are functions, or, or I'm not really calling them functions. I'm calling them operations, and just anything that that actually can be run. They could be lambdas. They could be anything that actually impacts the central state. Um, the other thing about a domain operation is that it's important to designate who is able to do that operation. So you have the whole um, authorization aspects of of the business. When you have all the data in one place, um, you you have to be very careful to make sure um, that access control is done properly. I think a lot of access control is done in an ad hoc way in organizations where you have the, you know, the finance system and the shipping system and accounting system, and you just make sure that people can't, you know, the accounting system, you just don't have a log on. If you're, if you're, if you're a, not an accountant, 
you don't have access to it. You just don't get to access that system. So it's done in a, a kind of rudimentary way. But I, I mean, I think if you do have shared state, you've really got to solve this problem of access control, um, which you have to do anyway, eventually, but you just have to do it up front. Mm -hmm. All right, so that was the principle number two. What's the principle number three then? So principle three is data consistency. And this is a little bit controversial, but really I'm saying here that the operations need to be applied in sequence to the state. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a good idea that each operation has exactly the, the latest version of the state, the state that the previous operation left with. And now this is a, a property that we used to have. Um, it, um, the earliest computer systems were, were mainframes. And if you wanted to do... Uh, mainframes were like a, an original atomic architecture. You fed it these punch cards. That was your program. And the and the and um, these punch cards would be organized as jobs. And the jobs would go in a, in a, a, in a queue, and you know, a literal queue. And then when one job had finished, updating its state, and you had these tape drives whirring around, and then the next job would take over. And it would see uh, often the, it, what, what the the state of the world was, was the data on the tape. Um, so what we're saying with con consistency was something that was so kind of implicit in these original systems. When things became distributed and you had multiprocessing systems, they actually worked very hard to retain and recreate a degree of consistency. And that's where database transaction isolation levels came from and um, kicks COBOL and transaction monitors to try to recreate. Because if you don't have consistency, everything else gets more complex. And I'll give some examples. If you credit um, somebody's bank account and then debit somebody's bank account and you don't do that consistently, you can have the wrong number. You can have a wrong balance. You can have two people book the same hospital appointment. So one travels to the hospital and gets turned away. You can order a product and pay money, but then find out, well, there was no product in the warehouse. They'd run out of stock. You have all these extra processes around to cope with the, uh, the lack of con consistency. And that, I think, is um, that the loss of consistency is a great source of complexity in our, our modern systems and our modern lives. Right. Yeah, when you mentioned the uh, operation needs to be a sequence, uh, the something that came up in my mind was the uh, interceptors, right? Where you pass one thing and then it just like applies the state uh, one after the other. Yeah. Uh, so that's sort of like clicked for me. All right, so following the data consistency, what do we have next? So having, we've built our system, we've got a shared database and we have these domain operations. Um, the next, um, and these operations are running consecutively. The next thing is how do these operations get called? Who, who is actually responsible for making them happen? Um, and I, I think that everything should be done through a request and that request should come through an API. So it does limit somewhat the class of systems you're talking about, but I think in, in uh, these days, many, many systems are called using APIs. I read somewhere that 90% of internet traffic today is API calls, RESTful API calls um, on the internet. So, um, this is a hugely popular model, um, but the benefit of forcing an API is that you can, any, any operation that is called, you can trace back to somebody using some application, some subject, some person who's actually responsible for making that. So from an audit point of view, having APIs, it is also the layer at which you can secure and authorize. So um, I think you know, this, is, this is really a... Um, 
a, a, you know, a key advantage. The, the other thing about an API is that it's the same contract whether you're talking to somebody in your company who is outside your domain or somebody who's um, a channel partner, you know, a partner of the company. Um, it could be a customer, a direct, you know, somebody just coming in from the open web. It could be a North Korean hacking group. But the thing is, the interface is exactly the same. So you're not having to support multiple interfaces or code paths, depending on the, you know, the, the, the consumer that's coming in. And I think that's, that simplifies things as well. Um, you, you see the echoes of this in the uh, zero trust um, maturity model that's being uh, promoted heavily in, for example, the federal US government, who are saying from a cybersecurity point of view, it, it is actually now the case that perimeter-based security, that's where you have you know, one firewall in front of your organization and, you know, or a VPN, and everybody then uh, inside that organization has sort of free access to all the kind of Windows shares and all the other things. Right. So actually, there's, you know, the other model is that you lock every room in your house. Right. Instead of having a, a gate, you just make sure that even if somebody gets into your house, that they still can't cause damage and steal lots of things by going from room to room. Mm -hmm. So from a cybersecurity point of view, we're, we're seeing a big trend towards individual domains having to think about APIs as being the kind of, you know, protect all of their assets and put them behind a, a a wall of, uh, you know, defensive wall, a moat, or a keep um, mm -hmm. of APIs. Right. So how how does the atomic architecture addresses this point of the access to different resources, different REST APIs? Well, um, so the so that's the next principle, which is about, about access control, and um, and I think the um, the this is where if you are making sure that nothing can happen in your system that doesn't come through the API. As soon as the, the actually at the API, API level, that's where you can address access control. Now, again, I think access control is something that is too close to the data for you to delegate it to another security team. Um, I'm, I, this has sort of parallels with um, uh, Jamak's uh, data mesh that, we, that we've been talking about because um, in, in the data mesh world, Jamik is saying that the, the responsibility for a domain to send, uh, to, to prepare reports and to create data sets for consumption is too, um, it, it's not going to work if you just delegate that responsibility to a big data lake team or a data warehouse team because those people essentially will not know all of the nuances around your data, the fields of you know what's useful, they won't know your data set well enough mm -hmm. to be able to make sense of it. It's it's for you to publish it. You know what you know your data best, and I think this access control is just like that. It's only it's only people within the domain who understands what's sensitive, what's the PII data, what stuff can be published, what shouldn't be, who has access to what, um, and if you look at um, the the, the difficulty with access control and, and authorization decisions is that unlike authentication, which is something you can do completely separately, you know, you can, you can completely delegate the idea of um, proving whether somebody's who they say they are, that's, that's an authentication problem. But with authorization, what you're asking is, does this person have access to this account or this document or this record? And this is why Unix file systems the permissions are on the files themselves, they're not on the users, because it's the files, it's the records themselves that are part of the equation. 
So in order to make an authorization decision, you have to know not just the person who's accessing it, the user. You have to know something about the, the resource that they're trying to access and often what they're trying to do with the, the operation, I call it, what they're trying to do with the resource. So those three things are important inputs to any access control decision. Mm -hmm. um, so, and th these are normally dealt with as any other, I guess, web application via OAuth or OpenID or... Yeah, yes, exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm saying that um, you should definitely embrace OAuth too. It's such a, you know, there are 10,000 or so RFCs and, you know, but they're not all equal and OAuth too is um, a very, very well-established uh, way of doing security around APIs um, is incredibly well supported now. Uh, and so what I'm saying is that every call to an API should be accompanied with an access token, unless it's a public API. Mm -hmm. um, so that means everybody, right, whether inside the organization, outside, if they're a customer, channel partner, North Korean hacking group, they have an access token. And, and, that, and that, that is just a harmonization of kind of good security principles across, across the whole domain. Mm -hmm. uh, and when we have this access token and we do certain requests, uh, what happens next? Well, um, after the, you, what, uh, presenting the access token presents to the system that you are a, a particular person, that mm -hmm. identifies you as a subject. It also identifies the and the scope of the access that you've been granted. So you can then, in, in um, the way I, that I've, um, I've aligned atomic architecture with OAuth 2, is that I say that a scope is really just a set of operations that you're allowed to do. So I bundle operations together conceptually into, into scopes. So you might have a, a bunch of operations, read customer details, read patient details, right. read patient history, and you say, well, let's just put that all in to read medical history. And, and then can then ensure that ap applications that come in, the applications themselves can be said, well, you're not actually a hospital application. You're, you, you shouldn't ever be able to read patient history. So you can, you can um, make quite strong, you can carve out whole areas that applications are just not allowed to do. So everything comes down to an operation, whether somebody's allowed to do an operation. And that is kind of maybe a lookup table or, I mean, we, um, I've been building some uh, in my site project. I make that because that's an XTDB project. I'm, mm -hmm. I, I use data log, but there are plenty of other ways of making these kind of access control decisions. Right. Um, but you do need to know who's coming in, the scope that is being allowed uh, and, you know, the, the operations that, that are being requested. Right. So this is one part of the story, right? When someone makes a request, they have access token. Uh, but is there the second part of this where we say, well, let's log every single request and let's see who tries to access that and then we can audit and then like, we can see uh, what's happening in the system? Yeah, I, I think that's the, that's the next principle, which is the, the penultimate one, which is event logging. Having built a system where everything is a state change, each state change is tied to an operation, we can simply log that operation in an event log tied with the, the, the person who did it and the time that it was done. Mm -hmm. And that event log really is, is kind of complete history of what happened and when. We could put the before and after states if we wanted to, or tr transaction IDs or, or, or something, anything that, anything that really helps 
a historian or an auditor go through and say, or, or somebody just trying to debug why a particular decision was made, you have that, that event log available. And you could use that event log to communicate the state changes that, that have been made downstream. So if anybody's, for example, if, if you were refunding a refund of a customer, it might notify an email agent to send an email out or to, to send some correspondence. And so the, um, the, uh, that event log might go to an accounting system or, or some other thing downstream. So having this, it's almost like the, the jewel of the state, having the, the state change, but each of those changes find themselves into an event log is really kind of one of the things that we've taken out of the event sourcing. Um, but we're tying it to this idea that you, you do need to know the current state. It's not enough just to, just to know the event logs, but it's good to have both dimensions. Mm -hmm. So having, having the event logs, um, so the next principle would be? And the, and the final principle is mm -hmm. is really this this uh, sense of work where when you have an event in the event log, you if you are doing some forensic and debugging, you it is a useful property of the system that you have a have the ability to go back to the previous version of uh, of the state that accorded to that event, and it's the same as a closure atom. You can actually one of the principles of a closure atom is that you can deref it, and that will give you the state of the atom as it is at that time and you can hang on to that reference for as long as you like and it doesn't matter how many state changes are happening in the in the original atom you still have that complete snapshot of that state at that time so if a system has a property where you can go back to any event and say well what was the state of the system at this point so for example if somebody's disputing why a loan application has been refused um, you can say well Let's just replay that. Let's go back in time. We'll find the loan application. We'll see exactly what decision, what logic was made at the time and see the state of the universe and be able to replay it and understand why that loan application was declined. Mm -hmm. um, so this is the principle of uh, B-temporality? Yeah, I, I mean, I just call it just, it's a useful thing to be able to have a, a, a set of state that you can go forward and back through time I mean, that's mm -hmm. just that so um not every systems need this but i think it's a it's a kind of a, a very nice property to have once you have all of these other properties um something as i've been kind of playing with this this idea that um you might um you might create an access token for a system but you say well actually i only i only want you to see data up until now i don't want you to see any future data with this access token mm -hmm. um because Things may, things may change and so right. or you may just say oh, you only access to yesterday's data I don't want you to access anything more current and so the ability to put into the access token some claims that limit the scope not just of the operations but what version of data can be seen I think that's all or whether it's just the test data of the system or, or so and it does give you all kinds of um, uh, options for mm -hmm. building some some very very principled um, robust and uh, intentional systems. Mm -hmm. um, so having discussed those seven principles, uh, and like I guess you spend a lot of time thinking about this, and we know that every single architecture has its own like trade-offs. How what do you see as the trade-offs in the atomic architecture? Um, the, I mean, the big, the big trade-offs I, I, I see, are, I mean, this is very much a concept architecture because some of the things I've talked about sound great in theory, but they're notoriously hard to build. Right. For example, 
access control is is really really hard to do consistently well in it and um, create, creates a, a great deal of thought i'm hoping with this architecture by giving people some patterns to, to and some sort of breaking things up into individual operations it makes the access control discussions more modular it modularizes those those kind of concerns um but certainly the challenges of getting everybody to agree on a common data model is much harder than everybody doing their own thing that's certainly a trade-off mm-hmm. right um so apart from the principles is there um and i don't want to like i don't know um call you out or anything like this is there are there any like next steps that you're thinking about putting this to into a i don't know some kind of a tool that will be helpful to people or maybe you're already working on something that will help people build such systems well yeah i mean i do i have been for about i mean we've been having conversations for for many years at yeshek so i've i've um you're well aware that i've been working very hard on uh rest and http as a sort of yeah. as a kind of enabling protocol for for much of this um and it was about um I think close to three years ago, I think just after the pandemic, where I I, I gave a talk at a closure meetup around um, something I, I saying that REST has a uniform interface and that you only really need to ever write one handler, one in, in closure that's a, a ring handler, and that in theory you should just be able to write one handler. So that was a I think a a kind of epiphany I had um, three years ago. So I've the, the um, on, on that I've I, I've been um had another kind of a i suppose epiphany soon after that which is the the benefit of having rest resources in a database rather than as kind of some virtual state or some some virtual construction that actually having um and it was very you know coincidental that um we were in juxt working on a database which has had maps as documents and and uh, each map had an id and so it kind of occurred to me around kind of august that year that well what if you i was working with a colleague and we just kind of came up with the idea well, what if the id was the uri right was the uri of a resource and mm-hmm. you just don't have to worry about a router there's no such thing as router it's just like is it is just a database lookup so we've been playing with that idea for two and a half years and mm-hmm. the result is a system where resources are kind of documents in in a database so I, i talked about this as being a durable repl in a way it's a still closure with all the maps and everything but the the, the this, every map it just sits in the database mm-hmm. um and the, I, I, the the other kind of thing i've been working on in the last 12 or you know, well, 15 months is access control so i've gone very very deep into kind of figuring out um how to do access control and kind of write down at the data level i did did think you know you could just do everything by um restricting the url at a firewall or just you know then i got into graphql and i realized that in graphql it's all about the data it's not about the slash graphql url so protecting just the url isn't going to be satisfactory so i spent a long long time kind of thinking around access control and building some st- stuff inside site so the current situation now as of you know, April the 23 is that um have a, a kind of an alpha status project in in GitHub uh, a site version 2 mm-hmm. if you will which is site version 1 plus access control plus um uh, this idea of using sci in the uh, sci as a kind of operations language so i've got a prototype 
set of domain operations. I've written about 200 of them, and they're all um, for implementing things like OAuth 2 authorization, grant flows, and things like that, but um, all written in SI, so they're all database documents. So the, the site system is really just a, a SI runner, uh, in a way. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so you mentioned a couple of times site, uh, the project you've been working on. I'm not sure if everybody's familiar with this, but uh, how would you, like, how, co- how could one conceptualize site? Like, what is it? Like, when would I use site? Like, when I build, like, how does this help me to build something? Yeah, well, the, the, the goal of site is that it's just this sort of Platform as a service, if you if you want, it just is, is this thing that you run in your infrastructure, mm-hmm. and then you talk to over an API, and you can put in resources, and, and some of those resources can be operations, and some of them can be your own data, and, and you can build applications that are just building APIs. So it's a kind of it's a seed or as a it's a platform. So you can think about it a bit. It's a bit like Couchbase, which is a, a document database that has some. Um, Web capabilities that can it can talk web protocols. So think of site like that. Now you could, it's open source. You could download it and just run it a bit like Juxt Edge Project or Luminous, where it's the template program. It kind of has internally. It's got some integrant modules and it. You can run it and run the uh, HTTP handler that I mentioned, the ring handler, and you can build on it that way. But essentially, if you were to use it in the in the way I'm I'm hoping people will use it, it it becomes a sort of layer above. The, the closure layer, which is a layer above the JVM, which is a layer above the operating system, which is a layer above the meta, as you, you know, right. it's, it's all one stack. We're quite used to jumping up into a, a higher level to get some, um, something back, mm-hmm. some benefit from the system. And I think the benefits of, of um, durability, of, of it kind of being at one with the database, of having consistency, having security built into the platform and, and, and by temporal by temporality, all of these aspects of site, uh, I think, are, are worth taking that kind of jump. But it, the, the trade-off is that you have to write your logic in a small cl- closure interpreter, which is mm-hmm. Spork Dudes, um, which is very, which is fun and very flexible. And you, it's one of those, a bit like Closure Script. You forget you're working in Closure, or you're not working in Closure. You're, right. you're sort of writing Babashka, but it's. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I enjoy it, and I've been working in this way for, you know, well over a year, I've been kind of working on these documents, and and I, you know, I I enjoy the benefits of working in something where everything is just in the database. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I assume that all like site, of course, is based on the seven principles you mentioned, or you're sort of like tying trying to tie those things together, those like concepts of architecture and building site. Uh, do you see like where do you see this going? Like, what's the what's the angle here? I think the end goal is to make it much, much easier for people to put together APIs, right? Systems of information yeah. with consistent, uh, consistently kind of information that you can grok and understand and debug, right? And yeah. and you can see and it's in front of you is, is to make data easy. It's in yeah. a database. Um, but at the same time to allow people to build APIs on, on those. This is kind of what a lot of people do. I think it's still much too hard. But the reason why I think APIs are just so tremendously important now, um, in the past, an API might have been a, a second fiddle to having a great user interface. So your humans were going to be your primary audience, and you might have some little bots or agents that you want to provide an API for. Today, it's very, very different. You have, 
almost everything that you write, whether it's a mobile phone app or a, a browser-based SPA, yeah. or if it's a, you know Alexa or Chat GPT AI, or, or there's so many things. Slack integrations. Everything wants to call an API. So if you don't provide an API, then the AI is not nothing to call. The AI might you know it will go to a different airline or a different right. service or a different restaurant. So now. Being able to build an AI, uh, sorry, an API, is so tremendously important. It's kind of um, like you, there's a real, um, there's a real going to be a real demand for building APIs. But to build secure ones that have authorization built-in, access control, access tokens, the ability to register clients with them securely, that yeah. you know, that stuff is hard, right? That now. GitHub and Stripe and Twilio and Google and LinkedIn, they, they've built those back-end APIs and they spent a lot of time making yeah. them work, but it's actually a very expensive thing to do for a company. And so what I'm trying to do, the, the end goal is to make it much, much easier, to almost make it a declarative right. exercise, a, a point-and-click, drag-and-drop exercise to right. put together a, a secure API um, that can do... That, that can do, um, yeah. you know, uh, enough for the... the the application needs. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I experienced this many times, especially like while doing the courses. I always felt like one third of the course was always trying to like get to the point where we can really start to build the API. Uh, I mean, we love libraries. We love to put everything together by hand. And you know, I, I totally agree. It's very hard. And I had a conversation with a couple more people in the community. And I feel like there is there is something coming up in a way that some people are working on similar problems and saying, no, this is just way too hard. Let's just try to fix this. And I, I feel like Site is also a great example of that. So, yeah. Um, uh, that's great. So um, would there be anything else uh, worth to mention about atomic architecture, Site, or anything juxt? Well, I mean, I'd like to say that yeah, this is probably going out after... John's given his talk at the Closure Conj, so I was good luck to John giving that talk, or um, kind of hope it went well. Uh, but the, the, a lot of what I said today, I certainly on, on site, is very much kind of built on top of all of the hard work of people in the the XTDB team who've been building that for for many years. It's just got to its, I think it's um, it's been on GitHub for four years now, so it's been you know it's been a um, actually can we edit that? I think it's been five years. <laughs> The, yeah, I also, I'm not sure. I think you it's been that. a long time. Yeah. Um, so, do you think we will see one day a book called Atomic Architectures? Well, uh, I mean, I hope that. I mean, I, I, I'm, I am engaging with people in the closure community, and any of your, you know, listeners who wants to kind of email me um, about this, I'm really, really keen to talk to people. And this is kind of a lot of where there's. Um, these principles have come from just by lots and lots of conversations I've had with people, not not just within Jux, but in, mm -hmm. in the closure community. So do get in touch with me. It's, it's Mal, Mal, M-A-L, at Jux.pro. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm always interested in anyone who wants to just schedule an hour, hour talking with me um, and just to go over one, of, you know, one or anything or just kind of the whole thing. Um, and a lot of people have said, actually, this is what we do already, or we do something very, very similar approaching this. And we, for exactly the reasons that you... you you mentioned so i think a lot of people in the closure community already do something like this but i think what i'm trying to do is is make this these ideas more palatable and you know in a, in a form that can be understood by people in right. people who haven't come from functional 
languages. So I'm trying to package this thinking up into so to be. I can talk to people in the kind of microservices world or the event sourcing world, CQRS and, and um, data mesh, or those sort of things. Because I, I, I think some um, real value in trying to trying to get uh, more conversation going and more people thinking about these uh, you know alternative ways of building information systems. Because I yeah. think what we're just not doing a very good job at the moment. I think we haven't. Um, there's, there's a lot that uh, we're still at the very beginnings of our industry, and we, we you know there's yeah. a there's a huge amount of potential. Yeah. Good. Um, would there be anything else? I think that's that's it. Yeah. Thanks that's great. Very much. I, as always, you know, talking to you, pleasure. And then, like, of course, like this. Uh, how can I say this? There's a lot of things that come now in the mind when I think about this. Uh, so I'm sure. Uh, there will be more coming after the conversation and I'm sure people will hear it and then uh, probably we can get some feedback. So yeah, if you want to reach out to Malcolm, uh, feel free to do that. And we'll include a couple of things in the show notes so people can take a look at them and then maybe this will also help to stir the discussion. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you.